Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Hi, Faye. Really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ethan. It's great to be here. Absolute pleasure every single week. And of course, we always love to get this show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Cool. So, hi, my name is Faye. I use they and she pronouns, and I am the co-executive director of the Post Landfill Action Network. We're a small nonprofit. We work across the country with about seven, 800 college campuses on student leadership and zero waste. Um, my journey into this work is kind of a long and winding road, but began when I was a student and working on waste issues on my own campus. I was actually like the recycling um, worker. And so I walked around campus picking up recycling uh, bags around campus and um, became fascinated just by by what people threw away, the systems on campus, how people kind of interacted with stuff. Um, and as I dug deeper into that, I began to realize our relationship with stuff has so much to do with the way that we structure our society and the issue with waste and planned obsolescence and environmental racism um, is one of the major contributors to climate change. Um, so that really, I became what I now call a trash nerd. Um, so that really informed the trajectory of my life. Yeah, I mean, you you literally dug deeper. You would like go and like siphon through like trash and see what people were throwing out, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was. I definitely did that. Where did this like inspiration come from? Where is like your? Where are you like from originally? Is your parents interested in like recycling or any of that stuff, or did it just kind of come about because you're like, wait, like how does this system work? Kind of thing. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I would say my parents, I think I was the one who was like really trash nerding out. Um, but uh, I think the inspiration really came from, um, I first got involved in, in a lot of like social movement work. Um, so I was doing work around um, uh, like civil rights and social justice and um, trying to kind of understand the way that systems of oppression were present um, in in our society. Um, I worked with like Students for Peace and Justice in Palestine, um, Amnesty International, a couple other groups, got my hands in like all different kinds of um, social and environmental justice work in like middle and high school. Um, and then I started to dig into to waste and, and began to kind of make a connection between so many systems of oppression that exist around the world and our stuff and the way that like stuff is created and uh, distributed and then thrown away. Um, and I, I started to realize that a lot of the conflict that we have is around resources and around resource control and distribution. Um, and so that's really what got me to waste is um, I see it as a, a vital component of addressing systems of oppression um, beyond just like the stuff that we have in our lives. 
Right. So we're going to dig into waste for the rest of the podcast, but I kind of just want to press on the oppression topic a little bit. So I'm like mm-hmm. a cis white man. Um, I don't really feel very oppressed. So can you kind of like, exp- what are these systems of oppression that you're referring to? How do they work? And why do they exist? If we all kind of, you know, we want to all live happy lives. Why is oppression happening to begin with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is, is exploitation, right? So um, the society that we live in, um, we, we, produce stuff. We extract resources from the ground, we make stuff, we distribute that stuff, people buy that stuff, and then we throw stuff away. And throughout that entire, what we call linear consumption economy, um, some people are getting rich and making a lot of money, and some people are often uh, being taken advantage of um, and ending up getting paid nothing or low wages in really dangerous work environments. We see this in factories all across the world that um, end up creating fast fashion. Uh, We see this in uh, communities that are experiencing the the extraction of resources or pipelines. Um, And it's so often folks who um, have like multiple kind of systems of oppression happening, right? They're not receiving resources, they're being kind of systemically um, refused resources and then being taken advantage of by having uh, these institutions that are polluting and that um, release chemicals into the air and into the water and into the ground. Um, And that is sometimes called a sacrifice zone. Um, So our economy, our like, um, make take break economy um, is so reliant on being able to just pump out stuff. Mm-hmm. And that is dependent on exploiting communities and individuals. Um, so that's when we talk about the kind of intersections of systems of oppression in waste work specifically, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? We're talking about folks who um, are living near incinerators or landfills. Um, and are kind of suffering the uh, the impact of the like level of consumption of our society. Okay, thank you for sharing. Um, I don't want to go on about this too much because we can get really deep on oppression. But is that that economic system not just supply and demand of labor, where skilled labor gets paid more and unskilled labor gets paid less? I'm not saying that it should be one way or the other but is that not just how like general economics works and it would we want to like reformat that like what yeah i just just a little bit more on that yeah um i'm not an economist but you are correct that is how our economy works and that's why the linear consumption economy um that's that's the problem um right the the economy is built to rely on that so something that we want to see and um, some folks like the the Ellen MacArthur Foundation does a lot of really great research around the implementation of circular economy. Um, And that is the direction that we want to start heading in. That's zero waste, right? Circular economy. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right, let's dive in. What what did you learn about like waste management when you were going like studying abroad and going to a bunch of different countries, how it works there compared to like the US? Yeah. Um, So a little bit of background on that. Um, I had the incredible opportunity when I was a 
junior to do a program called the International Honors Program Beyond Globalization. Um, and so I traveled in um, Washington, D.C., uh, Tanzania, India, New Zealand, and Mexico. Um, and each of those places, um, I kind of dug into some of the waste systems and not just waste, but also kind of like production systems, understanding the, um, the, the globalized aspect of this linear consumption economy. Um, and the, <laughs> we could have a whole, whole long conversation about that, but um, I really think that like a lot of what, what I saw and started to understand was um, something we've already really touched on, which is like the folks who are dealing with the global waste system um, are um, experiencing like incredibly toxic living environments and incredibly toxic work in order to uphold um, this like global consumption of resources at, at a, a really, really unsustainable rate. Um, so I think a big thing that I learned is that like none of this can be confined by borders. Um, so much of the systems of um, waste waste management um, are global. And you can see like walking around a landfill in, in Ahmedabad, India, um, you will see like Trader Joe's packaging that could have come from like down the street in Center City, Philadelphia. Um, and that that kind of like global waste trade um, is is heavily contributing to um, to the the impact of climate change and the impact on like individuals' lives. Um, and and so much of this stuff is just not going anywhere. You know, like that that Trader Joe's package is going to take a long long time to break into smaller pieces, and it it really will never go away. I have an interesting question for you. Do, do you think that this overgrowth or like consumption economy came about because of um, population growth? Or do you think population growth came from us overproducing stuff like the chick chicken and the egg question? <laughs> hmm, that's a really interesting question. Um, Just something came up in my head. Yeah, um, I think it, it's probably a like uh like a, a mutually beneficial relationship <laughs> you know the like steps of um of stuff and people and stuff and people um yeah i think it it, it wasn't one or the other necessarily no or do you have a personal like position on like population growth i don't know it's a tough one. Yeah, it's not sure. But um, cool. Let's so let's get into like what you're an expert on. And I wanted to ask you about what role you think universities have to play in this transition mm -hmm. to a zero waste economy. Cool. Yeah. So as I said, I started my work in in student organizing myself as a student. Um, I started a, a fossil fuel divestment campaign on my campus um, and uh, got to see and be a part of what it looks like for like student power to really grow and and impact a movement um and i got really interested in understanding like the way that social movements have grown in the past and you can look at so many social movements and see the impact of students right like we had 
um, in the civil rights movement, we had SNCC, which organized the Alabama bus boycotts and the lunch counter protests. We had the Vietnam War, um, so much student, student activity around anti-Vietnam War work. Um, as South African apartheid, students were a major part of ending South African apartheid through divestment. Um, and for waste, I think that we have kind of a unique opportunity, not only to address movement growth and to kind of build skills and build, um, build up like resources and tools for folks who are interested in, in participating in the movement. But we also have kind of a unique opportunity when it comes to waste systems. So the way that I think about it is like um, enclosed systems. And obviously campuses are not enclosed. So going a little bit deeper, right? Um, have you ever been to like a, a big football stadium? couple times not a big sports yeah. guy over here yeah I, me neither you know but <laughs> <laughs> um major sports stadiums they're usually like pretty um uh on top of managing the stuff that comes in and out of the stadium right is that an uh, example of an enclosed system like a sports stadium? exactly yeah so you can get kind of like really specific when you get into a sports stadium most campuses have stadiums um, and in those stadiums, you can be really conscious of saying, no one's allowed to sell styrofoam or straws or plastic bags and everything that comes into the stadium, we need to have a very clear waste management system for how it goes out, right? So we have to be able to have all of the stuff be compostable or we can have reusable uh, dishware systems within a stadium because everything is staying in that enclosed system. Um, so then we kind of back up a little bit to a college campus where obviously it's not nearly as enclosed as a stadium, but you're able to kind of measure and test out these different programming. Like you can test out a campus-wide reusable mug system where there's like mug vending machines. And instead of getting a disposable cup when you go to your local coffee shop, you get a reusable cup and then you go to class and right outside class, there's a vending machine and you drop off your dirty cup. And then that cup gets brought back and cleaned and reused. And so these kinds of like reuse and compost systems um, allow us to cut down on the, um, the disposable like dynamic that we, that we have, we rely on often in our kind of like go, go, go society. Um, and then we can try these things out and then apply them to communities. So there's this really uh, great tool of uh, utilizing the resources and the structure and the energy and the kind of innovative spirit of campuses to test out solutions um, and testing out what it looks like to have um, folks with different like needs and expectations and familiarity with systems and interest in participating um, be a part of these systems, which is a good model for communities. Very cool. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like one corporation or idea that like started in a, in a campus and got large widespread adoption. And the only example I can come up with is Facebook, but it's a great example mm -hmm. because it started with college. It didn't even start. It started with I think it was just like Harvard, right? And then it spread out yeah, to like so. Boston. And then it, now it's this giant global phenomenon. So that 
really worked. And, you know, a couple of the early adopters are like, this is going to be a big thing. That's really interesting. I was trying to think of another one. Um, so what, tell me about what is your project? What is plan? Like, how did you get started? What, I mean, we kind of hinted at what you guys are trying to do, but like, let's give like the introduction, like what is plan? Yeah. Um, I actually, can I, I want to back up too and address the, up. the, yeah, the, the project started on campuses. Cause I, I've got a couple of examples that um, are folks that we actually work with. So I'm like, thank you. You know, want to, want to promote them too. Um, one is um, Vareo skateboards, which as students, um, this group came together, I believe they were Northeastern university students. Mm -hmm. um, and they came together and uh, figured out a way to make like Frisbees and skateboards and even Jenga sets out of um, recovered fishing nets. So that is now like, a full business because fishing nets are often made of plastic. Yeah. So they were able to recover the fishing nets and melt them down and turn them into all this cool stuff. They make uh, sunglasses as well. Um, that was a student project and now it is a full blown company. Um, there is Scrap Dogs Compost, which are some students from um, NYU. Um, who started, were working on compost on their campus. And then when they moved, it's actually in Rockland, Maine. Um, when they moved to Maine, they decided to carry on the, the expertise, the tools, the skills that they learned as students. And now they run a community composting program. Um, and there's so many, so many examples um, of, of that kind of work. Um, one of my favorites, which actually isn't a business, but, um, is students from University of Santa Barbara um, were able to ban microplastics, microbeads on their campus. So huh. um, if you're not familiar with microbeads because they are now banned nationally because of these students, um, a lot of like face washes or toothpastes, a lot of the like exfoliating stuff would have tiny, tiny little particles of plastic in them. And that's what they would use to exfoliate your skin and, and some toothpaste had them in it, which is probably not very good for you, but, um, and all of that stuff after you used it would get washed down the drain and into our waterways, um, which is obviously a really bad thing. And students were able to ban that on their campus and then make that ban a California ban. And then it is a national ban. So um, microbeads are not allowed in our products at all now uh, because of the student work that kind of expanded beyond their campus. Well, thank you so much for bringing that up. And that last example was really awesome. But I, I guess what I was getting at was, of course, amazing ideas start on college campuses and then spread out to the rest of the world. Like, for example, you know, Steve Jobs went to college, he dropped out, whatever. Um, but what I guess what I was like curious about is like, if you really think that college campuses are good model communities for large-scale adoption of ideas because I kind of see colleges or universities as they're called around the world as like glorified like sleepaway camps where people pay lots and lots of money and they're surrounded by all like similar people to them whereas when you go out to certain communities or cities like it's totally different there's no it's like it's not really like supply and demand. It's like people are paying in and the government subsidizes people to go there. Um, yeah, just a little bit on that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, they're definitely not exactly the same as communities. And that's kind of why I see them as like a step rather than like the final the final uh, implementation. Definitely. 
cool. All right. So, so what's plan? What's your project? How did yeah. you get started with it? All that stuff. Yeah. So uh, the post landfill action network or plan, um, we have a staff of nine of 10 full-time people. Um, and we are, we just entered our ninth year. So we're nine years old right now. Um, we were actually started, um, in 2014 from, or sorry, 2013 from a student project at university of New Hampshire, um, and grew to be able to support students across the country in running zero waste programming on their campuses. Um, so the kind of work that we do. Um, is supporting students in basically having the like tools and resources that we wish that we had had when we were students trying to do this kind of work. Um, so we make manuals that cover all of the ins and outs and pros and cons of different decisions and best practices around everything from student run thrift stores and free stores to composting to um, move out projects. Um, and students can use those tools to implement programs on their campuses. Uh, we also have like a variety of programs that will allow students to kind of connect with each other and connect with like-minded um, folks to share solutions and create like community and skill sharing. Cause a lot of times there's not, um, there's not a, a ton of community on each individual campus. Um, who's interested in this work. So it helps to have this like cross collaboration, um, helps to keep students from having to reinvent the wheel every time they wanna do, do a program. Um, so we have a, a variety of different programs. Do you want me to get into the programs right now? Do it, absolutely, I'd yeah? love to hear it. Cool. Um, so we have our, our membership system. So campuses can become members of our network. And when a campus is a member, they have access to all of our tools and resources. Actually, every student on that campus has access to our member hub, which contains all of the manuals. We have over 300 pages of digital manuals that folks can come in and read all about different programming. We have a digital, digital leadership certification that teaches students the ins and outs of campus organizing. So everything from like how to run an effective meeting to how to talk to campus administration, um, to how to um, create petitions or campaigns or um, kind of the, the basic skills that students need to know to organize. That's our Beyond Waste Leadership Certification Program. Um, and then we also have partner discounts. So we work with um, a select group of partners who, uh, for-profit companies who we feel like are helping to kind of support the movement and folks that uh, campuses, typically students organizing on their campus need the supplies and resources from to provide discounts to our student members. So maybe that is like reusable water bottles or upcycled um, reusable bags and students can put their campus logo on it and get it for a discount and then distributed on their campus. Um, and so that's our membership system. Um, and then we also have a couple of like specific programming. Um, one is our Break Free from Plastic program um, and our campus pledge. And Break Free from Plastic is actually a global coalition of organizations working to address plastic production and use across the world and the um, disrupt the, the supply chain around single-use disposable plastic specifically. Um, 
and we uh, manage the, the campus pledge aspect of that. So uh, we have a, a very specific pledge where campus presidents sign on to commit their campus to getting rid of single-use disposable plastic over a certain time period. Um, and through this pledge, we really try to take into account accessibility measures. So making sure we're not um, removing tools and resources that maybe folks who have uh, rely on single-use packaged plastics for food access or for disability reasons. Uh, we try to take into account um, ensuring that this is an accessible program for everyone um, and that we're not kind of creating a problem by trying to solve a problem. Um, and so that pledge has been at this point, I think, signed by uh, like 15 to 20 campuses, somewhere in that range. And just this past year, we had 100 active campaigns um, working on getting that pledge signed on campuses. Um, and then we also have the um, Atlas Zero Waste Consulting arm. Uh, where we work even closer with campuses and we do waste characterization um, studies. We have this, uh, this what we call a 360 assessment, um, where we analyze all of the ins and outs of campus waste, everything from the dining halls to the art studios to the horse barns to like every single piece of it. Um, and we give campuses ratings based on their current structure and recommendations for how to improve. Um, and this is a, a three-stage project. So the first stage, um, which is actually the, the characterization study is completed by current students um, who are paid to do this work. Um, and then we convert that into a report. And then the second stage, we work with the campus to create a zero waste task force and create a a plan for actually implementing the changes. Um, and then the th third stage is where we work with them on implementation. So uh, that project is really hands-on. Um, and then additionally, we have all of our events um, and we do a, a series of events. Um, typically they're in person, but for the last year and a half, mm -hmm. um, we've been doing a lot of digital events. Just last year, we did 65 digital events um, over the course of the year. And we're actually coming up to our biggest digital event um, in just a couple of weeks, which I can talk about in a second. But before I yeah. do, I've been, yeah, do you have any anything you want to ask about? Yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. Well, I, I think it's amazing that you guys, I have yet yeah, two things. I think it's amazing. Uh, first, is, did you and your team create all of these projects from like scratch, just like brainstorming? Um, to an extent, yes. Um, so I joined Plan. Um, a little bit less than a year in. So I'm actually not one of the founders oh. of the organization, um, but I have been with the organization since the first year. Um, and we have a team structure that um, really encourages folks to have ownership over their projects. So the way that the projects are now have been created by both the current staff and the like, all the staff who have been involved through the years. Uh, but they're all unique projects. We've built them all from the ground up as you know, the generations of plan staff. That is amazing. Um, yeah, so one thing I'm thinking about how it's, it's, it would be great, easy to, uh, or not easy, because nothing's really easy, but effective for spreading ideas is, I'm, I'm imagining it's quite um, 
effective to like cross pollinate between universities, right? When you're talking yeah. to other universities, they love to adopt the ideas now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big part of our model. Um, and, and, you know, universities can be kind of like, like feed into competition. Um, and so we try to break that down a little bit and How so? make opportunities, um, you know, competing to see who's the like greenest school or oh, who has the best program or um, things like that. But um, we really approach this from a movement perspective and want to want to take into account the fact that like we need to be it's we don't have time <laughs> to compete when it comes to climate change. Uh, we need to be collaborating. We need to be sharing resources. We just don't have um, we just don't have the time to to not address the the impact of our consumption and and just like disposal of resources. For sure. So when it comes to like organizing all these different projects, like what does your day to day kind of workflow look like and how do you kind of convert sustainability into operations, you know? Yeah. Um, so I am one of two co-executive directors for the organization. It's myself and Sierra, who was supposed to join us today, but unfortunately was not able to. Um, and we um, we have probably the most boring jobs on the team. Uh, we do a lot of the budgeting and the document editing and the grant writing and the kind of back end insurance and all that stuff, making sure we're, we're keeping everything up to date. Um, but the structure of the team is that we have um, a uh, a pretty like democratic structure where folks are able to um, really take ownership and like make decisions around their own projects. Um, and the way that we have built the team is is an attempt to um, break down some of the the like normal structure of nonprofits. Um, recognizing that, uh, like I said, the issue of climate change, it is, it's looming, right? Like it's, it's on our doorstep. We're seeing the impacts of it, the wildfires, the floods, like we're seeing it happen right now, right here. And that can be really anxiety provoking. And something that we try to do within the organization is balance sustainability within the, the structure and the expectations of our staff um, with the sustainability of our programming. So we try to incorporate um, lots of staff benefits. Uh, we've actually changed our um, like full-time structure from a 40-hour work week to a 35-hour work week. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah, which is really nice. We have flexible work structures. Um, we really try to encourage folks to take, take time off and to not work on weekends when we don't have to and to like Kind of turn it off and and take a break because um we have a long way to go in this work and it's really important that we can go the distance and that we're not burning ourselves out um so that's that's not only something that we incorporate into our operations but it's something that we try and help teach the students that we work with um because that can be really exhausting to be a student and sometimes have a job and be organizing and be told that like you're the future um and feel the, the weight of that so um we try to make sure that we're encouraging the students that we work with to take a break and take it slow and do what they need to to take care of themselves um and and ensure that they have the tools to be 
as effective as they can be. Um, so they're not like making mistakes and, and making things take longer than they have to. So uh, we try to really like thread that through every piece of our programming. I think that's really awesome. Yeah. People first, you can't go wrong. It's all about that mm -hmm. long-term vision. If people burn out, they're not going to be as effective, but uh, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. That's something we could talk about off the show at another time. But uh, I hear, what is this I hear about an event you got coming up? Yeah. So we have our students for zero waste conference. Um, it is November 5th through the 7th. Um, and this event is, uh, we've been doing it since 2014. Um, every year, last year, we took a break, sadly, because of COVID, but we're bringing it back this year. We bring together around 500 students and organizers um, from all across the country. Um, and it is global. We have folks from, from all over the world really um, attend and present at this event um, to talk about the, the future of the movement. Um, and it is the largest gathering for students for zero waste in in the country. Um, it's, I think, probably the largest zero waste uh, movement event in the country annually. Um, and the uh, the content is what we see as like the kind of growing edges of the movement. So we have panels where. Um, folks are able to talk about um, everything from dealing with single-use disposables on plastic to the relationship between capitalism and zero waste, um, or uh, what it means to build resilient communities or mental health and the zero waste movement. Um, so we really try and hit um, as many of the different, the, the different topics as we can. Um, and along with that, we have opportunities for folks to um, get connected with each other. So that's a, that's a really big part of this event. And typically in person, we do things like having um, like trips where folks can go visit uh, facilities that are, are doing cool upcycling projects. Um, or we, we do a drag show called Waste is Such a Drag every year. Um, and this year with the digital format, we're going we're gonna to incorporate the music, we're going to incorporate the networking and the connecting. Um, and, you know, it's going to be different, but um, we're trying to use the tools, the digital tools that we've all gotten so familiar with now to actually increase the amount of connection that folks can have. Um, so it's going to be a blast. Um, Sounds November like fun. 5th to the 7th. Yeah, it is a sliding scale of uh, tickets. So tickets, you can pay up to the full cost of a ticket or you can join us for free, um, whatever whatever works. Um, and we're really excited for it. It's going to be a lot of fun. It sounds like it's a lot of fun. Where is it usually uh, physically happening? Yes, yeah, so we did the first four years, I believe, in New Hampshire, and then mm. the last three years in Philadelphia. Very cool. So one thing I want to ask you is you're clearly a very deep thinker and you're a systems thinker, and you're trying to analyze the way the world works and trying to isolate something specifically waste and fix it. Um, something I deal with um, that's difficult for me is when I'm working on climate action is I talk to lots of people on the show and I hear people talk about environmental racism and systematic oppression and all these large scale issues with our society 
Do you find it difficult to kind of, I don't want to use the word conflate because that seems like it has like a negative connotation, but when you're pulling a million different facets of society into a way to fix one issue, do you find that like difficult? Because for me, I'm like trying to find like a, a simple, it's not simple, it's not easy. You can't just hit one input and fix climate change, but I'm trying to find a way to be focused and direct with my actions. I wanted to just ask you about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and um, I have I have kind of two answers to that question. Um, the first answer is uh, when I think about that question, I think about movement history. Um, and a lot of times when we look at the history of movements, something that we see is um, an attempt to create solutions without taking into account the 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 like level of complication of the problem, it actually creates more problems. Um, and that's that's a pretty common um, issue is like the creation of problems in an attempt to create solutions. Um, and so that is that's one of the reasons that I think it's so important to actually lean into the the intersectionality of this work. Um, a really great resource. So the 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 term intersectionality um, was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and she has a couple of really really good resources where she talks about why like what intersectionality is and why it is so important to movement building. Um, and I would I would highly suggest that that as like a, a tool or a resource or something to check out. She has a couple of like really good videos. Um, nice. And then thinking about what it looks like as like an educator or as someone with with an audience, something that we've done at Plan, uh, because you're you're right, these things are complicated, and we don't always have. You know, we live in the the, the TikTok generation, right? Like folks need things like now, and it needs to be able to be like understood quickly. Um, and so something that we try to do is build visuals. Um, so we have, I don't know, is it possible for me to like share my screen? Definitely. Is that something I'm, I could do? Yes. Yeah. You're going to, you do that, go for it. And then I will kind of cool. just try and, or you can just describe what's on the screen as well. So like half of the people will cool. see it, half the people are listening. So yeah, go ahead and go ahead and pull it up. I'm excited to see what you've got to show. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, cool. So yeah, talking about um, visuals, right? So visuals are super important. And this is a visual that that we created a couple of years ago to uh, give folks something to, to grasp onto when thinking about um, the scope of this issue. Um, so I'm going to describe um, this for folks who are just listening. Um, what, what we've created here is a visualization of the linear consumption economy, right? So I mentioned this earlier, um, we extract stuff from the ground. So we've got a pipeline, um, we produce it into stuff. So we've got smokestacks indicating um, refineries, um, and then we distribute that stuff. Um, and then we consume that stuff. So going to big box stores, trucks to big box stores, um, and then we dispose of that stuff. We throw it away and then it goes to landfills or incinerators. Um, and in our graphic, we kind of show how that um, thread moves along. And then the way that we think about change and actually our, what we call our theory of change as an organization um, is points of intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and in this graphic, we represent points of intervention 
by showing people resisting extraction, resisting pipelines, um, creating renewable ways of producing um, and redesigning stuff and kind of intervening, right, in extraction, intervening in production, um, intervening in the distribution and consumption process by reusing stuff, repairing stuff, recovering stuff, uh, composting stuff, um, and then intervening in, in our systems of disposal by reclaiming communities that are often um, in areas where stuff is being disposed of and, and resisting um, that that industry. Um, so we show, and, and if you are, if you're just listening to this, if you go to our website, postlandfill.org, um, and you go to the about plan page, um, you can see this graphic yourselves. Um, but that's the, that's the visualization of, um, how we see this being, um, a, a, a systematic structure that we need to address at all of the points of intervention. Um, and this is a tool we use in a lot of our educational resources because um, it, it's it's so helpful to kind of see when we're talking about change. You can see the problem, but you can also see what solutions might look like. Um, and that's that I think makes it a lot more um, doable, right? Like if we say we need to change the linear consumption economy, the question is like, okay, wh where do we start? Like, what does that even look like? Um, it looks like this, resist this would be a good place to question. start. Yeah, like at the very beginning. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, we need people starting there, but we also need people redesigning stuff and repairing, right? Like we need all of it all at once. Um, so that's that's kind of the, in the points of intervention theory, we talk about um, the idea that no one can do everything, but everyone must do something. Um, yeah. So helping folks find their point of intervention. So what, like, is reuse your point of intervention? That's great. Like. It is one cog in this whole system. Totally. Yeah. Well, so what's interesting is you've you've used colors here. You've used green and red, red to show the mm -hmm. way things are, green to show the way we can kind of redesign and make things better. Yeah, I guess that at the end here, I kind of wanted to talk to you about if you thought it was really even possible to create this regenerative economy based on the way we kind of live our lives now and what you know about anthropology. You were you studied anthropology, is that right? Yeah, sociology and anthropology, I did. Um, yeah, that's the big question, ending with the big question. Um, is it possible? Is it even possible? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's necessary um, and it's not necessarily going to be easy um, and it might not look exactly the way that we think it'll look but the, the reality is the way that we are currently living um, and the way that our systems are currently functioning is unsustainable we live on a finite planet we cannot continue to extract and produce and consume and dispose in this in this in this way anymore it's it's just not possible um, so it's not a matter of if it's possible it's a matter of how the transition happens um, either it happens in a way that um, we use up all the resources we totally trash the planet lots of people uh, end up getting like exploited and endangered in the process or we we do a, a what's called a just transition 
um, we are intentional and we are sustainable and we implement changes that allow us to increase the, the uh, standard of living for everyone. Um, and I think that the, the question of like, you know, is it possible is, is um, it, I, I hope so. I hope it's possible for us to do it in a way that is is just, and and that's what I've kind of committed my life, and so many other people have committed their lives to doing. Um, but whether or not it's going to happen is is not really a question. It's it's a guarantee. Uh, well, I asked you that question because I wanted to see what you said, but I'm absolutely certain that it's possible. I mean, if you observe the way nature works, like people have this idea that we are superior to nature, that we're, we're different from nature. But if you look at the way nature works, they all work in reciprocity with each other. The fungi feed the trees and the trees feed the or give homes for animals. And we, we do something similar, but we've kind of taken it to a point where we use our our logic, logical minds to uh I don't even know what to call it, but it, it can be done because it is being done. It just might not be being, being done well by us at scale. But um, Faye, yeah, it's been really great having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to come out. I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's really important to educate people about how they can do this stuff and then targeting universities and showing people when they're at that stage where they're kind of first getting out into the world and experiencing uh, what life is like, I think is really great because that, that foundation will stay there forever. My last question I love to ask people is what advice do you have for someone who's passionate about creating a more inclusive and equitable society? What can they do today or what would you recommend they do? Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to be here and, and talk about this stuff. Um, and I think the, the advice that I would give is, is find your point of intervention, uh, find what you can do to, to get involved and show up. And um, I think beyond just what we can do in our daily lives, the best thing that we can do is to, to get involved in communities that are um, making change and, and get involved in organizations and show up for community meetings. Um, that can be the the kind of on road to uh, figuring out your point of intervention and the thing that um, you can really make change within. Um, and one other thing that I will uh, just put in here is that we do have a fundraiser right now. Um, mm -hmm. We're fundraising to make, uh, yeah, we're fundraising to make, uh, continue to make the conference uh, free for member campuses. So if you go to our website, um, we would love it if folks donate. Uh, we have our general fundraiser. We also have our SCW fundraiser, which you can find on our Students for Zero Waste SCW page. Um, but uh, we always really appreciate that. We make a little money go a long, long way. Um, and thank you so much for having me, Ethan. I really appreciate being here. My pleasure. Yeah, I'll be sure to link uh, all, all that stuff. And I think that that graphic is really cool. Was that someone from your team, like an artist from your team who made that? It was. Yeah, that was our um, creative director, um, Genevieve DeGroot. Um, a couple of years ago, we use that in a, in a lot of our programming. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to share that one as well, because that's really cool. I'll be sure to put that uh, in the show notes or on the Instagram post or whatever. But Faye, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate what you're doing. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Same to you. Take care. All right, everybody. See you next week. Peace. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals.
So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.